0: Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin. Okay, on today's program, we have an incredible opportunity to hear from Reverend Dr. Rob Reamer. Dr. Reamer is professor of pastoral theology at Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, New York, and he was founding pastor of South Shore Community Church in Massachusetts. He's the founder of a ministry called Renewal International. Now, Dr. Reemer is also an accomplished author. His books include Soul Care, River Dwellers, Spiritual Authority, Calm in the Storm, Deep Faith, and Pathways to the King. Okay, so hopefully I did justice with that introduction. Uh, Dr. Reemer, welcome to the program.
1: Uh, so good to be with you, Jonathan. And thanks for having me on.
0: This is a real treat. You know, I've recently read your book, Spiritual Authority, and been really moved by that and impacted. And I can't wait to hear some of your story. So can you give us a little bit about your story and your background? Because the audience is going to hear you share. And they'll probably wonder, where is this guy coming from? I mean, because you, from my experience, you're writing and you're uh, preaching. You know, you speak with authority. You speak of authority. And people often wonder, how in the world do you end up in a spot like this? So help our audience get a feel for where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, so I... I actually grew up in the church. I was in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, you know, a fairly small denomination, a few thousand churches here in the U.S., Uh, but honestly, we believed in things like healing and things like that were part of our doctrinal statements, but we never saw anybody healed in my church growing up. We believed in salvation, too, but I never saw any adults get saved in my church growing up except my dad at 11 years old. So honestly, I had this experience where there was a diff- disconnect between what I read in the Bible and what I heard, sort of saw in my experiential level at church. Right. And uh, I started when I was 19. Uh, I had a an experience where I surrendered my life to Christ and I, I had this encounter with Jesus where the love of God was poured out in my soul and just transformed me. And honestly, I read the Bible differently. I went, you know, too often, if I'm honest, what we actually were preaching in church was this is who Jesus was, Hmm. and this is what Jesus did. But if Hebrews is correct, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the true message is this is who Jesus is, And this is what Jesus does. And that wasn't the message getting preached. And I honestly thought, I got to preach the true message. I got to preach Jesus, not the historic Jesus who once lived and did this cool stuff, but the risen Jesus who still lives and still does this. Well, the problem is, that means you got to figure out, how do we access the power of God in today's planet? so we can present the gospel in a way that is authenticated by Jesus'
0: transforming presence once again. Wow. Well, that's uh, that'll move you. <laughs> that'll move you to reconsider some stuff. So did these uh, kind of concepts you're wrestling with, that all started after you really uh, came to the Lord in a, in a legitimate, powerful way? I mean, you're pretty young at that point, right? In the, Did you yeah, start thinking 19. about this when you were young or—
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I started reading the Bible when I was 16. And so I was reading the Bible through every year. And I would honestly, I was struggling because I would read what the Bible said and I would see what was happening. And I was like, this, he he doesn't seem to be the same God that I read about in the Bible. What's missing? And then finally I went, uh, maybe the problems on our half of the equation here, not on his half of the equation.
0: So as a young, as a young believer, then studying this, did you know at that point you were going to be going into, you know, traditional full-time ministry roles or pursuing, you know, seminary? When I surrendered
1: my life to Christ at 19, it came with a clear sense of calling, literally just knew that I was called to go to ministry that day I surrendered. So I, you know, I trusted Christ when I was in second grade or whatever, but (laughs) I wasn't all in, sold out. I just went to church. And believe this stuff, but it didn't shape my life until I had that encounter with Jesus.
0: Right. Wow. That's amazing. So then you go on to uh, seminary, to uh, a position in ministry. You know, how, you, you mentioned, I saw in your bio here that you helped found a church or you're a founding pastor of a church. When did that come around in your life?
1: Yeah. So Jen and I got married. When I was 25, uh, we took a job right afterwards as an assistant pastor for a few years, but they brought me on staff with the intention of planting a church. And so when I was just about 30, we actually launched public services. Before that, we were behind the scenes starting small groups and Reaching people for Christ, but then we launched public services when I was about thirty years old. So that would have been uh, 1995, October of 1995. We started South Shore Community Church. Wow,
0: what an experience! And how long were you there at at that church?
1: Twenty, almost twenty-two years. Okay. So we were there for a long time, and there was a lot of ups and downs, and goods. And first twelve years sailed along, and a lot of people came to faith in Christ. Lives were being changed. A lot of good things were happening. But, you know, the reality is I wasn't in it to just grow a church. When I was 24, I was alone with the Lord in a prayer closet at the seminary, and I heard the Lord speak, and he said to me, you're going to plant a church, you're going to teach at seminary, you're going to write books, and you're going to speak to leaders internationally, everything you do do for the purpose of revival. And I was you know, 24 and I literally just said to the Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but I'm never gonna push my own doors open because I never wanted selfish ambition to rule the day or to direct my life. And so I said, if you open the doors, I'll walk through them and just one by one, they just started coming open, uh, You know, opportunity to plant a church, church started growing, good things were happening. And I got invites to start speaking at seminary and start doing classes at seminary. When I was 40 years old, I sensed a release to write. And uh, I just said to the Lord, if that's you, then give me confirmation. I had one lady that I don't really know. I'd only met her a handful of times, wrote me an email. She said, I was out taking a walk, heard the audible voice of God. God told me to tell you to write a book. And she was very apologetic. Yeah. I literally had five people in the next month all have a word from the Lord that it was time for me to write, I had imagery, pictures, words, whatever. And It was clear, you know? Yeah. And the same thing, it was time to travel. Same thing. Just I had four or five people immediately give me confirming words that it was time for me to travel. And then the invites started coming in. So one step at a time, the Lord kept opening doors. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it rolled out.
0: Well, that's amazing. I've I love hearing that you didn't force the doors, you let God open them. That's that's a rarity, actually, on a lot of people's ministry trajectories. I really believe God honors that. Um, question with your culture, you know, when you were developing that church and leading that church at that phase, you know, were the things that you're writing about now even in your mind, or did this stuff start to emerge later? Were you practicing it at this time? Or are these like, well, the, are the, the books in the ministry kind of like, lessons learned, you know, like how did that go?
1: Yes. So first um, I didn't understand the concepts I talk about in soul care, which really are, these are the principles to become free and full in Christ. How do you empty the the baggage of your soul? right? Right. And honestly, we planted a church thing was growing like a weed. And all of a sudden we're a few years in and my wife doesn't like me anymore. And, you know, uh, in the beginning, I think this is fairly common. Somebody's giving you a hard time, right? You're praying, oh, God, change them, fix them, heal (laughs) them, deliver them. Like they're clearly the problem, right? And then after a while, I went, hey, you know, it takes two to tango. It takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. Scale of one to ten, if you're a three in terms of your emotional and spiritual health, the healthiest relationship you'll ever have is a three. Yeah. You want to move from a three to a five. There's only one path to get there. It ain't rocket science. You yeah. have to change. You do what you've always got. You'll get what you've always gotten. Right. So right. finally I got to the place where I realized I just need to focus on myself and I need to get healthy. And, uh, you know, I started getting healthier and then Jen started getting healthier and then our marriage got healthier and I went, I kind of need to introduce this to the culture of the church. And so that's when we introduced that. Right. right. From the very beginning. I was preaching on things like the power of God, healing, stuff like that. But we weren't seeing a lot. And, you know, and that was part of the problem. Really, I I, I got to a place, Jonathan, where I became uh, discontented. And I would say in the beginning, it was probably holy discontent and became unholy discontent. I really okay. took offense at God. Interesting. And the reason I was discontented while the church was growing, people were going to hell on a rocket ship in New England. Uh, you know, my lifetime, it's gone from about 50% of the population would attend church on a given Sunday to about five percent of the population. So our church, wow. little church, is growing, and the entire population of New England is just, you know, set and sail from church, man. We're we're breaking, we're breaking free. And I went, This isn't what I signed up for. Hmm. You know, hmm. you told me that everything I did was for revival. And I started wrestling with God and one night the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and he said to me, I need to teach you spiritual authority. Wow! And and that conversation with the Lord led me to go away to the monastery, which I did regularly. And I said to the Lord, okay, it's clear you're trying to teach me something. So I've set aside three days. What do you need to tell me? And uh, part of what he said to me was study Moses. He holds the key. And I studied the life of Moses. And what I discovered, if I can simplify the point, is that Moses is not a story of a man of prayer that developed authority. It's a story of a man of intimacy hmm. that developed authority. The story of Moses is a story of a man who is an intimate friend of God, And the key phrase there is his face. In the first encounter with God, he hides his face. And then later on, he becomes a face-to-face friend with God. And it's the intimate connection with the Father that produces authority in Moses' life. And you know, I realized at that point in my life, a lot of my prayer life sounded like seeking the hands of God. God, give me this. God, help me here. God, provide this. God, give me wisdom. God, heal this person. God, help with this problem. And finally, I went, if I had any other human relationship where all I ever did was help me here, do this, fix this, It would never have a good relationship with that person. They get sick of it, right? And I thought, I need to seek God for himself, and I need to seek his
0: face for intimacy and not simply seek his hands for what he can do for me. So you feel like that might be where the discontent came in in that process. Was it more related to not seeing the overall change and increase in the culture as far as the effectiveness of people uh, relating to the church? Or was it more about like a a discontent regarding like personal connection with God or power? How was that looking for you?
1: Yeah, the disconnect was definitely over results. I wish it was as noble as I longed for more (laughs) of God, but it was as ignoble as I wanted God to do more for me than he was doing. I felt like I was working my tail off and uh, the results in New England were, you know, increasingly bad overall. And I, I felt like he promised me revival and he wasn't delivering. And so what he taught me in the process of my disappointment and offense was to become a person of authority is very different than being a competent leader. You know, the leadership model we teach in the church today is really just a business leadership model with a little bit of a Jesus cherry thrown on the top of it for good measure, you know, be a good person and pray but the leadership model that's actually outlined for us in scripture is very different it's a spiritual leadership model and it involves spiritual authority and i think our western leadership context doesn't understand that stuff very well
0: fascinating okay so i'm a big fan of the book spiritual authority like i mentioned and the subject is really near and dear to my heart so after 30 years of full time ministry you know i've observed Uh, That a healthy theological understanding of the concept is really like a leading indicator of an effective believer. And I've seen that believers who are marked, you know, in their reputation, even in the spiritual, as overcomers, you know, in this world, they're not only informed theologically, like grasp it conceptually, but they've really become practitioners, you know, disciples who co-labor with Christ, who really shape the world around them. And those, those leading indicators are observable in a way, kind of like what you're, you're mentioning about the difference between leadership and actually walking in authority. And a couple of things I really admire about the book. Uh, first was the simplicity of the message. And the practicality of the message for all believers. So it was really accessible and, and applicable, I felt, as you laid it out in that book. And no matter what station or what I would call a metron people were were in in the kingdom of God, I felt it was really something that could be acquired or used. You know, it was graspable. So how did, you know, how did you land on the why of this of this book? What was the comp- compelling moment, so to speak, or the reasoning there with all that being said?
1: Yeah. So first, uh, you know, again, what happened in my own journey, and this was a huge driving factor for me, Jonathan, but what happened in my own journey was I realized I'd basically been trying to lead a spiritual movement through human leadership capacities, competencies, and resources. And you know what? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And you know what? I was trying to accomplish something in the spiritual realm. But at the end of the day, if you try to lead out of your own gifts, abilities, competencies, and resources, you will only ever accomplish what humans can accomplish. You are your own lid. Your potential is your lid and you'll never surpass it. But when you get God at the center of the equation and start to lead out of spiritual authority and carry his presence at a new level in your life, and you are marked, By the presence of God, it's that marking. Now begin (laughs) to see what God can do. Amen. And now you can exceed your gifting. The only way I know how to exceed human capacity and gifting is being marked by the presence, which is a huge part of spiritual authority. And so, a lot of this just came down to the fact that. I wasn't seeing what I needed to see, what I felt like God was telling me. And it was because I was trying to do it in, if you will, in my own strength. I was trying to do it out of my own ability. And God was saying, no, you need to learn how to go a different path. You need to learn how to be marked by my presence. You need to seek my face. I have a line in the book, which kind of frames the whole book. Spiritual authority is rooted in identity. It's expanded in intimacy and it's activated by faith, right? That little phrase is super important to then developing spiritual authority. So in order to really develop authority, I've got to get my eternal identity, my eternal citizen really centralized in my life. And listen, let's just look at COVID. We've come through COVID. And one of the things that I can clearly tell you as the church has come through COVID, we are more American than we are Christian. In some cases, we're more Republican than we are Christian. In other cases, because I'm around the New York City area, and I'm just going to tell you, lots of inner city people are more, who are Christian, are more Democrat than they are, you know, Republican. So we're either more American or more Republican or more Democrat than we are Christian. But hear me, man, during COVID, we've been more white, black, Asian, and Latino than we have been eternal citizens of heaven. Hmm. We've got to make our eternal citizenship in Christ our Preeminent identity. It has to be the prioritized order of living. This is what it means to truly be a Christ follower. This is why Jesus looks at his followers and goes, If you don't hate your mom and dad, you can't follow me. Well, you don't hate your mom and dad. What's his point? His point is, Your loyalty to me has to exceed every other loyalty that you have in your temporal identities, because this is your eternal identity. And so, you know, there's been a bunch of shifting that took place. When I started going through that, then I started seeing a release of God's supernatural presence and power in life like I had never seen before. But not until I really was marked by his presence, developed authority, really centered on my identity in Christ, really pursued him with face-to-face intimacy, not just his hands, And then started activating faith at a whole new level.
0: Wow, that would be a game changer. And I I doubt that many people have ever heard this presented, especially like, you know, as simply as you're putting it. And and they probably never observed that kind of impact or change in anyone else's life. They may not even know that that's available. And so this is really helpful because I think a lot of people live almost in the fear or the dread of that lid, that self-imposed lid that you're describing and not thinking there really is no other way. So I just have to maximize what I can do under that lid, whether that's a bunch of seminars, books, training, personal development, self-help, whatever, thinking I just got to get as close to that lid as humanly possible, the human condition lid and never realizing, like you said, this is the way to exceed your gifting. This is where yeah. God's intention is.
1: Yeah. So think about it. Moses, right? Think about Moses. Exodus 17, very famous passage. Joshua's going down below, fighting the first battle. Moses is up on a mountainside. As long as he has his hands raised, Joshua's winning the battle. By the way, in his hands is the rod of authority. Hmm. As long as his hands are raised with the rod of authority, Joshua wins the battle. He lowers his hands because he's an old guy. He gets tired, sits down on a rock. Joshua starts to lose. I think Aaron and her probably put this together like, hey, you need to raise your hands here. Let us lift your hands up. So they do. And at the end, the ESV captures the phrase in Hebrew. And the phrase that they use at the end of that story in Exodus 17 is this, a hand upon the throne. See, that's spiritual
0: authority. That's right. Spiritual
1: authority is the capacity to touch heaven and change the outcomes on earth. But you see, how did Moses get there? The answer is that face-to-face intimacy that you see in the story of Moses. He went from a man who hid his face from God because of his shame to a man who pursues God face-to-face and becomes a face-to-face friend with God. And that is what enables him to touch heaven and change earth that that's really the key. There's got to be a development of authority that allows you to exceed your gifting. And in that what's happening is you're being marked by the presence of God.
0: Right. Right. And that, that concept, I love that concept of, you know, touching the throne of heaven and, you know, touching the condition of earth, so to speak, that's actually an element that's really at the heart of my most recent book on the Metron concepts. But I, I, uh, I really resonate with that because I see that also, you know, some people might think, well, yeah, that's Moses or, yeah, that's him saving a nation. But that's just as relevant to somebody laying their hand on their three year old in their family.
1: Yeah. Or praying through a work environment situation Absolutely. that truly is a spiritual battle yeah. and seeing that battle shift, right? He literally saw the outcome of a battle shift in the. Physical realm because of his spiritual authority. Uh, And then think about the disciples, right, Jonathan? The disciples, I mean, they're a bunch of fishermen, and, you know, these are very regular dudes. They are not superheroes, man. They don't have any big S on their shirt. There's no capes going on. These are normal, everyday blokes. And yet, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 says to them, I give you authority. To drive out demons, heal the sick, save the lost, set the captives free. That's the work of the church. And you know, it wasn't because they were superstars. It wasn't because they had unusual talent. Probably the only one of the disciples, the early church leaders that had truly unusual gifting was the Apostle Paul. The rest of them are super ordinary, normal folks, man. That's why he chose them. And yet, when they're marked by the presence, the spirit comes on them. There's an anointing. That's the marking of the presence. And they learn how to use spiritual authority. Now, all of a sudden, supernatural activity follows their ministry.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it becomes that leading indicator concept that I was mentioning there. I really resonate with that. You know, one of the things I've run into when introducing or talking about these concepts about spiritual authority is cultural misperceptions. Now, you touched on this early on in your book, and I think this would be really helpful, particularly for our audience here. A lot of young professionals, different folks like that, who uh, they don't understand the distinction between authority and authoritarian. And they immediately compartmentalize anything to do with the word authority, even spiritual authority is somehow a negative because authoritarian carries such a negative connotation. And I think it would be really helpful if you could maybe unpack that a little bit for believers about why authority is not a negative when they think, because yeah. when they hear that word, they usually think the lights that come on are abuse of power, control, manipulation, all these things. And they have, they don't even, they don't have a data point to reference to even. And so how do we unpack this for people?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I teach and believe to my core is the true spiritual leader is the most magnanimous person that walks into the room, that magnanimity, large-hearted, noble, gracious, right? Full of love. They're the most magnanimous person that walks into a room. Hear me for a second. When you forfeit magnanimity, you forego spiritual authority and you move to control.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: And so when you see people moving to authoritarianism, they're actually moving to dogmatism, just strong opinions that aren't Measured and marked by the presence of God that produce a weightiness to their opinions. Their opinions are weighty in a domineering, dogmatic way. They're forcing it and they move towards control. But that's not Jesus, man. Jesus walks into a room and everybody said about Jesus all the time. No one ever spoke with him, taught like he taught with such authority. That is, his words were marked, dripping, soaking with the presence of God and therefore carried a weightiness. There was an ancient weighty wisdom that when Jesus spoke, a heaviness came into the room and everybody went, Man, no one talks like that. No one teaches like right. that. There's there's a marking on his words. That was true authority, but it wasn't domineering. It wasn't producing fear in the followers that if I don't follow, I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to get some sort of re- repercussion. That's classic control that actually comes out of human leadership and authoritarianism right but not spiritual authority
0: yeah and what that's absolutely spot on and you know one of the things i try to encourage especially young people who are wrestling with these concepts is you know pointing to the fact that authority is actually crucial in god's design for your protection And for your covering and for your success, and it's not something to be evaded, even though culture always tells you to do that, Uh, you know, how would you how would you explain that to a young person who's has a take it or leave it attitude about authority? I mean, it's hard to get through the misperceptions,
1: Yeah. So, one of the things that I think about is the image-bearing concept, right? We're image-bearers. This is part of the concept of our identity in Christ that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We're created in the image of God. Well, you know what? What this means is, therefore, we carry a degree of sovereignty. Now, work with me for a second, right? God is a sovereign. Therefore, you're created in his image. You carry a degree of sovereignty. Now, hear me for a second. He's the ultimate sovereign. You don't carry the level of sovereignty that God has, but you have a degree of sovereignty. That has two implications. First implication, you have choice. You know, God has ultimate choice. God can do anything he wants that doesn't violate his own ways of doing things and his own character. Okay? Now, you can't do anything you want. You can't become a bird today if you want to or anything like that. But you have volitional choice. You have authority over your choice. Listen, there's a great book that was written a long time ago, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Right. This guy was a Jewish concentration camp survivor. And when he was in a Jewish concentration camp, one of his premises is this. That the Nazis could take away all kinds of stuff from him, his possessions, his family, his life, his health, etc., his dignity. But hear me, this is what he said. They could never take away my choice on how I chose to respond to them. Hmm. So I chose to respond to them with dignity, even though they were not dignified in their treatment of me. That right. is brilliant. He understood the concept of free choice that he was created as an image, bearer and he had choice, right? Well, the second thing that this implies... Is that you have authority? God is a sovereign. He has authority. You were created in his image. You have authority. Listen, to forfeit your authority is to allow the enemy and the prince of darkness to flood the gap in areas where you were assigned to bring leadership. If you forfeit the right to use your sovereign given spiritual authority, you are giving up territory to the enemy of our souls. Part of the reason why the world's a hot mess is because there aren't enough believers out there that are marked by the presence and carry true and authentic spiritual authority that can push back the gates of darkness. And remember, that's what Jesus said. That's he said right. the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The gates of hell, they're the fortress. We're on the attack. We have authority. We have an assignment. We have a commission but too often, we are the ones that fortify ourselves behind the walls of the church and hide, and we're just waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us in the second coming. But that's not a biblical concept.
0: Man, that's, you know, and that's so powerful. I, one of the things I, have, I really exhort young people with is like, hey, you, you can't have authority unless you're submitted to authority. It's a downline. And, Absolutely. and the submission part is the part that gets everybody. Nobody wants to submit to anything. They they want the they want the king without the kingdom or the kingdom without the king. You could, should say. And you yeah. know, within the kingdom, there's an authority structure that flows from the king. And I've found that to be the toughest part to get people to be okay with the concept, the proper concept of submission.
1: Yeah. So, two maybe you have three thoughts on that. First thought. So, uh, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, all authority is delegated to us. Right. And the only way you can access it is through submission. Okay. As a matter of fact, in that same passage, he he said to the disciples, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's submission. Okay. Then you think about Matthew 16, right? Jesus, one of these passages where Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom and, and he's talking about the authority that he has given to the church, the very next scene in that he tells me he's going to die. Peter looks at him and goes, oh, not you. No way. You can't do that. That's not what messiahs do. And (laughs) Jesus looks at him, rebukes him, says, Satan, get behind me. And then he teaches them that if they're going to truly follow him, they must pick up their cross and follow him. Hear me. What he's saying to him is you don't get to use the keys of the kingdom unless you take the way of the cross. There is no authority without submission. Okay. And I'll give you a last thought that I have on it. And that is this, I think your self-life, that is the part of you that is self-dependent, self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-centered, selfish, your self-life. Okay. Your identity that's false, that's rooted in a self-life. Your self-life is most strongly formed in your greatest area of childhood wounding. Hmm. Now, the reason for this is because when you're a child, You don't have the capacity to process that wounding. So when you have frequent, painful childhood wounding, you start to develop barricades, fortresses, walls, protections, coping mechanisms. You build a self-life. Now, hear me. Here's the problem. Because it happens when we're children, what ends up happening is we so integrate this as part of ourselves that we think, well, that's just the way I am. We don't see it as this is dysfunctional, this is broken, this is self reliance, self dependence, etc. Now, as long as we are self reliant, self dependent, self sufficient, Christ cannot be formed in us. Sure. The only way Christ can be formed in us is if we die to self. We must die to self in those areas where self was formed so that Christ can be formed in us so we can become truly identified with him, that's where identity is formed in Christ and where authority starts to develop.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's a great presentation of that concept. I'm hoping that my audience will latch onto this so that it's not complicated, but it's doable. And I, you know, one of the, one of the last things that really was on my heart to uh, pull out from your book was this concept of co-laboring with God. Once, you know, given, given once someone's embraced the understanding of operational spiritual authority and they're beginning to realize, okay, I have something to do here. I have responsibility in this. And that then this idea of co-laboring begins to emerge. And I liked how you presented it in the book and how you outlined it. And I've also found though that in a lot of Christian culture, there is zero uh, paradigm about co-laboring. And and I emphasize it tremendously in my own work, my own writing, but I've also found that it seems to come across as quite a new concept. Has that been your experience or how do you present co-laboring uh, based on kind of the context of what you're sharing here?
1: Yeah. So if you think about Jesus, right, Jesus is our model for life and ministry. And if you think about Jesus... Jesus says in the gospel of John that he only does what the father tells him to do. He only goes where the father tells him to go. He only says what the father tells him to say. So Jesus living a life of submission. And if you're going to live a life of submission, that's when you get to cold labor. Otherwise, what you're really doing is trying to tell God what to do. (laughs) You're trying to get out there and make something happen in the flesh with your own human abilities and reliance. And then you're asking God to bless it. But if you're going to really co-labor, it begins with that submission. And you're simply looking for what the Father is doing. Right. And then you're joining him in his activity. And that's what Jesus does. Well, you know what? The Father always gives us strength for what he assigns to us. But not every need is our assignment. That's right. Not, Not every battle is given to us by God. And so part of what I need to do is sort that out and go, okay, Mm -hmm. what is the father calling me to do? And then I need to join him in that. And this part of co-laboring, it's learning how to live a life reliant, dependent, in step, to use Paul's words, Mm -hmm. with the spirit. And this is really when we start to see the empowerment of God. God empowers what he wants to accomplish.
0: Yeah, and that intimacy is the key to that, even with co-laboring, to find out what What am I to do? What do you want to work with me on or in? And, you know, as I I always use the terminology, the Metron Paul's concept of the Metron, you know, what's in my Metron, what's outside of it, and how do I navigate that, but it definitely does start with intimacy, if I'm hearing you correctly, in this whole, uh, whole unpacking of these concepts, but
1: yeah, well, even think back to the story I told earlier, Jonathan, right? I'm 24. You're good. The Lord lays out for me my life. You're going to plant a church, You're going to teach a seminary, You're going to write books, You're going to speak to leaders internationally, everything you do for revival. Notice my response, right? I said, I'll do anything you want, but you have to open the door. Right. I understood, even at 24, my incredible propensity to make it too much about me. Right. You know, listen, the greatest problem in the church today is we're making it too much about us. It's about our ideas, our opinions, our strategies, our strengths, our competencies, and we're not mixing Jesus at the center of this thing. And I just went, I'll do anything you want, but you have to open the doors. And literally every step of the way, he opened it, he led, he confirmed it when he was leading and I stepped in and he blessed it, but I'm just in step with the spirit. That's really what I want to try to do. And I don't get it right all the time by any means. No one does. But boy, if you have that as a goal, it's a lot more likely you're going to get it right.
0: Yeah, if you're submitted, you got a chance. (laughs) That's That's where it starts. Submitted
1: (laughs) and listening and just saying, I'm here to obey. What do you got? I'm in. Right. You know, so think about Ephesians 2.10, right? Where God goes before us and prepares good works for us in advance to do. I mean, think about this concept. But every single day of your life and my life, God has an assignment for us, various assignments for us that he wants us to step into that he's already prepared and ready to bless. Yep. But so often we're not on his agenda, we're on our own agenda and we're trying to get him to bless what we want rather than get involved with what he's already prepared.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Man, that is like a key to a number of areas and one of them would be the blessing we're seeking in life. It sounds like right there. Uh,
1: Yeah. You know, I like to say the secret
0: Of success is to find what God wants and do it. Yeah. And he invites us to do it with him, to not have to do it on our own strength. Not yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. It's beautiful.
1: And it's simple, but you know, the hard part's actually making sure you're hearing correctly from the Lord. And you're not always going to get it right. He's got lots of grace.
0: Yeah. But at least try. So if I hear you're right, if you don't know. What to do, so to speak, to step into this area of developing an understanding of spiritual authority, to at least lean in on the intimate relationship with God step, and then make you know put a lot of effort into that if even if you don't understand the rest of it yet.
1: Yeah, you know, if you start really by seeking his face, not his hands, yeah, and uh, you know, trying to hear his voice, what is he calling you to do? What are the promptings, leadings? What is he prepared for you today? And step into it. Um, and some of that, I mean, this is where your identity has to get really squared away because you know what? Sometimes God calls you to take risks, and you're you're going to be nervous. Sure, uh, sure. it's going to you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I don't know, is that God? Is that me? I'm not sure. So you have to have a security. And that security comes from knowing you're deeply loved, and it's got to be really in your heart, not just something you know cognitively, to make you secure.
0: Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Well, thank you so much for helping establish such a healthy baseline here in this audience for understanding spiritual authority. Uh, the book is really valuable. Your ministry is incredible. I encourage everybody to uh, check out your materials, your resources, and and highly encourage my audience to to read or do the audiobook version of spiritual authority it's a game changer and it's really fun and one of the things i really enjoy about the book is the amount of stories you put in and the amount of testimonies and a lot of personal testimonies and personal experience was was that a little bit um like vulnerable for you to put those in or how did you feel about it putting in a, so many intense incredible illustrations
1: Yeah. So um, that's kind of been something, again, that I felt like the Lord had called me to do is to share my testimony all the way through. So this one uh, is vulnerable, but all my books are like soul care. I'm talking about our marriage struggle and how I ended up seeing my issues in it. And I talk very openly about my issues and humility begins with honesty and it ends with responsibility. Yeah. Too often in the church, we have this false sense of humility God loves honest people. Just be real. Yeah. You know, and don't make it too much about you. Just be honest. Just be honest about your flaws. And, you know, so, anyways, yep, just super honest. But I don't, no, I don't really find it difficult at this point in my journey. No.
0: That's great. I loved it and I was really inspired by it. Uh, I love sharing testimonies as well. So I resonated with that. And I think it'll make it a really compelling read for people. So. Uh, Dr. Reemer, thank you for your time and your investment in this audience. Really appreciate it.
1: Glad to be with you today. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager podcast presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.